0: Welcome to The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for part two of a two-part conversation with Rick Ingrassi and Michael Lerner as they discuss A Life in Healing, Cultural Transformation, and Psychedelic Medicine. Rick,
1: we've both done a lot of work with people with cancer. You are part of our effort up here to create Healing Circles Langley with um diana and kelly Lindsay, which is doing work with people with cancer and other illnesses and conditions of loss and trauma uh, i'd love to ask you to address the question of the role of psychedelic medicine in deep healing for people with cancer or other conditions of trauma let's imagine that the listener really wants to explore this wants to know who are the authoritative sources, uh, who to read, um, and above all, uh, how to find their way toward trusted practitioners who can help them do this safely uh, with the highest probability of, uh, of a deep healing outcome. So we're looking at the whole range from cannabis or marijuana up to the most uh, life-changing psychedelic uh, medicinal uh, uh, plants and substances what does that what does that look like if you lay out everything from marijuana on out what is the sequence and what what should people think about if they're looking for this kind of healing? I know I'm asking a lot of things at once here, so we'll kind of go through it in whatever order makes sense, but I thought I'd put the whole question out there.
2: Well, that's—it it is a big question. Uh, it's a great question. It's, again, in terms of my life work, uh, as soon as uh, I started to work with psychedelics, uh, it affected my own capacity to be with life-threatening illness, patients with uh, all kinds of uh, chronic dege- degenerative diseases. Uh, but cancer became the focus of my clinical work uh, for 18 years. Uh, I called it a mind-body approach to healing uh, with cancer patients. And again, uh, I, I was looking for legal opportunities to work with mind-altering substances to catalyze and enhance the healing process. Because uh, my experience and my belief was that there were quick ways to get to a place of empowerment around the healing uh, process, uh, because I essentially believe that all healing is essentially self-healing. And removing some of those uh, barriers and blocks and fears... uh, to self-healing seems to me to be a worthwhile goal with anyone. But when you're facing life-threatening illness, it's particularly important. So, I, uh, I guess I'll just uh, make some suggestions. Or, or uh, uh, the drug MDMA... Which is known as ecstasy, and now the kids call it Molly. Uh, uh, but it's been around since the '70s when it was resynthesized by Sasha Shulgin. Uh, became a popular party drug. Continues actually uh, to be used in the festival and rave uh, scene by young people as, as uh, the source of ecstatic experiences, communal experiences, dancing, and uh, being in community and music uh, like that. <clears throat> but for some of us uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, it became a legal tool for uh, helping people to heal uh, quickly. And we're, we're talking healing from trauma, PSD, uh, fear of dying, you know, various forms of emotional incapacitance and suffering, uh, that uh, come from having a lot of anxiety. It's an anxiolytic drug that uh, is not psychedelic or hallucinogenic. It's more uh, what you were calling an entheogen, You know, allowing you to experience self-acceptance and self-love and the God within, let's say. That's what entheogen means.
1: So it's not psychedelic. No. No hallucinations. No hallucinations. Um, uh, But it gives you that sense of the divine
2: well it gives you the sense of the divine or i would say it gives you a sense of self-love and self-acceptance that is so profound that you recognize that you are the divine Mm -hmm. you are connected to the source
1: and it reliably does that yes
2: it's phenomenally predictable in that sense Uh,
1: how long does an mdma session last
2: well, um, obviously it depends on how it's structured, but uh, the way it's used uh, clinically or for, for healing purposes, uh, it's usually, you know, ingestion of a dose that would last for three or four hours. Uh, many of the protocols uh, introduce a booster, an additional dose after two hours so that it actually elongates the dose response curve to about six six to eight hours. And it's, it's such a joyous state for most people that, uh, you know, making it or helping it to last longer is desirable because you feel like you're in a space that you want to stay in for a long time.
1: What are the contraindications for MDMA?
2: Well, um, because it is amphetamine-based, it will increase heart rate and blood pressure. So if you have severe hypertension or, you know, cardiopulmonary disease, At the very least, you have to be checked out very carefully. Uh, Other than that, uh, if if it's done uh, dosage wise uh, correctly, uh, and there is no advantage to taking uh, an excessive dose because just uh, you lose all the benefits and all the side effects like uh, jerky eyes, nystagmus, or clenched jaw. You know things that come from taking too much. Uh,
1: so what's uh, the right dose that people use? 100 milligrams. Mm-hmm. And how how do people ensure that they're getting a pure substance and not adulterated? Well, this is the trickiest
2: part, isn't it? Um, because one of the big problems of criminalizing these things, because uh, as I was saying, until 1985, MDMA uh, was legal uh, for physicians to both... Uh, manufacture and and, uh, use in in clinical settings. Uh, Once it went, uh, you know, schedule one in 1985, um, you know, the access to pure MDMA became more difficult, to say the least. And uh, a lot of uh, what gets sold as MDMA is, you know, mixtures of all kinds of bad things. So I always caution young people when you're going to a rave or a Festival, you know, make sure you know the quality of your source or you mm-hmm. could definitely get into trouble. And occasionally you hear about people dying and whatever. It, uh, MDMA is not dangerous if it's used appropriately in and, and, and the sources.
1: So in the <coughs> informal economy of uh, the things that young... When you say, you say to young people, make sure you know your source, in the informal economy... Can people with reasonable certainty know sources that are said to be good?
2: Yes, uh, it's a supply and demand supply thing. And demand. Uh, the, mm-hmm. There is a supply of high-quality MTMA available all over the planet. I got it. Uh, uh, there's also a lot of crap mm-hmm. available, and
1: but people who are part of that community and knowledgeable tend to know. Yeah, who, who creates the good stuff?
2: I mean, clearly, uh, I can't. Uh, right. Stand here and list uh, sources, right. and the, right. but what you need to do is use word of mouth connections, uh, trusted uh, relationships, mm-hmm. and then the other thing that's been introduced at a lot of festivals are uh, uh, little lab setups uh, where, where you can you, test you, you can test uh, what you're what you're getting. Uh-huh. You know, Very which I I would encourage. You know, mm-hmm. it's called uh, the the new movement uh, in 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 uh, drug. Uh, Abuse and drug addiction circles is harm reduction. Yeah. You know, the question is: okay, we know these kids are going to take these things. You know, what's mm-hmm. the way to reduce any harm that might come from that? Mm-hmm. And one of the ways is to know what it is that you're taking. Mm.
1: Now, what about you mentioned uh, blood pressure and heart disease and so forth, mm-hmm. which I've had, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, what about? Um, uh, personality disorders are borderline personality people uh, at risk with this? Mm,
2: not, not in my experience. Uh, I I've never given it to anybody who suffers from schizophrenia or uh, right. you know full blown psychoses. I mean, it just seems you know why why would if somebody but people already, you
1: know. who are kind of loosely. Con- I mean, I know in the cancer help program, for example, that uh, from time to time, despite our screening that will get somebody who is, I like to say, quite loosely constructed or loosely hung together. Mm-hmm. And um, where depth work can be uh, a question for them. Uh, they are better off uh, staying on the surface in some way uh, mm-hmm. because that's where they can hold themselves together. Mm-hmm. Um, is... Uh, MDMA contraindicated for loosely constructed people.
2: Uh, no, uh, it, you know, again, I don't. Yeah, or I haven't Hard had question. a lot of experience with with borderlines yes. uh, doing these things. But uh, I would say the difference between MDMA and a lot of psychedelic experiences that psychedelics will blow you apart. You right. Know, in in and of course, when it's done appropriately, in a good sense. Yeah. Because. You know, the fact is we hold on way too tight to our little right. reality bubble, right. and it's actually quite healthy to right. expand that. Um, MDMA tends to be more like a heart-centered glue. You know, it, it actually pulls you into a state of, I, I, I really feel myself whole as mm-hmm. a good person. as as a lovable being. Mm And these these are experiences, a lot of people, they go their whole lives and and they have this experience, they say, oh my God, I didn't realize I could feel this positive Mm -hmm. about life. So, while I don't recommend, you know, playing with the edges of uh, human personalities, I'm I'm saying that... um,
1: You haven't seen a
2: lot of... Yeah, it's not a lot It's not something that's super dangerous. Mm -hmm. That said, um, when it comes to cancer patients or anybody who's facing an unknown future mm-hmm. based on, you know, an illness, mm-hmm. uh, the opportunity for personal growth and healing. Mm-hmm. And in in return, you know, if you do think that the mind and the body are one, as I do, uh, I've seen people heal mm-hmm. their physical illnesses in ways that uh, you have no explanation, you know, from the Western scientific model, you know, they call them spontaneous remissions. Mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but even in the face of that, uh, the goal is not necessarily to promise, oh, this will heal you physically. Yeah. It's to, it, this will open you up to the fullness of your life.
1: No, I totally get that.
2: And that's, that's uh, those of us who made the commitment back in the 80s to, to work with this, with cancer uh, mm. in particular, or with uh, PTSD, it uh, was because you just saw so much healing and so much mm-hmm. goodness emerging that uh, why would you not mm-hmm. offer this or make it available? And, you know, back in the 80s, I must have done 500 MDMA sessions, you know, saw no side effects, meaning uh, no negative uh, outcomes. Uh, it, you become a believer, you know, that, uh, <clears throat> I mean, the, the way Newsweek magazine, magazine uh, got me to phrase it uh, when they, you know, in 1985, we were fighting to keep this as a medical uh, research mm-hmm. tool. Uh, they said, well, what's been your experience with MDMA? And I said, well as far as I can tell one well-run MDMA psychotherapy session is the equivalent of two years of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And that just caught people's imagination. Mm -hmm. Oh, there really is a way to get to the heart of healing um, and there's there's a a safe and, and predictable pharmaceutical aid for that.
1: I mean Um, Was MDMA um, banned internationally as well as nationally when the War on Drugs started in the United States? Well,
2: it wasn't banned until 1985, and then it was uh, through international treaties. Uh, Uh, Through international treaties. It's Schedule I in the United States. Uh, It uh, it shouldn't... Well, don't want to get into the politics, but, uh, you know, it was one of the... (laughs) The government... Had a point of view, and they were going to enforce it, uh, whether the evidence supported it or not. I mean, we had hearings down in Washington D.C. and Boston, uh, and we won those hearings, meaning that the evidence pointed to not putting it in Schedule One, maybe Schedule Two, so that mm-hmm. it could continue as a research uh, mm-hmm.
1: tool. So here we are in 2015; the research is emerging
2: again interna- internationally
1: and being made legal again.
2: Yeah. Just the research,
1: right?
2: I mean, it's still a criminal offense to sell Mm -hmm. or purchase MDMA Mm -hmm. pretty much anywhere in the world, and yet a vast underground economy is based on, you know,
1: that pursuit. Well, that's the point, isn't it? That there's this vast underground cultural economy Mm -hmm. that just doesn't pay any attention. And therefore, the experience is widely accessible. Mm-hmm. But if you're a cancer patient, not part of the counterculture, kind of a law-abiding type, struggling with this stuff or with PTSD or whatever, you're told it's illegal.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a bummer <laughs> yeah. from that point of view because uh, back in the 80s, I mean, I, I just loved working with cancer patients who were not into drugs at all. Mm-hmm even drinking, you know I mean, it, just, it wasn't their thing, and yet they would have this experience and be profusely thankful.
1: Give me an example of one patient you remember that you worked with.
2: Well, um, there are lots of them, but uh, the one who actually uh, uh, helped me win a debate on the Phil Donahue show when I was invited in 1985 to debate the DEA and... Uh, That's the Drug Enforcement Agency. Yeah, the Drug Enforcement Agency and the head of NIDA... Uh, Uh, I said I would only do it if I could bring some patients and have them in the audience so that Phil Donahue could actually ask them what was your experience Uh, and there was one young woman she was a 42 year old lawyer who had terminal uh, liver cancer and uh, this is a woman with a heavy southern accent from Missouri or somewhere south in the she had a 16-year-old daughter and a husband, and, uh, you know, emotionally, she just wasn't that open. You know, she was very uh, self-contained, and so here she was having this uh, life-threatening crisis, and, you know, you can imagine the impact on the whole family. They, they were not handling it terribly well. Suffice it to say, um, I offered to do this one session with her uh, in my office, and uh I worked with her for three hours. Then I br- invited the daughter and the, and the husband to come in. And for the next three hours, they had the most profound meeting of the hearts that they'd ever have in, in, in their marriage or in, in, you know, their daughter her relationship with her daughter. And uh, it was just so powerful and so beautiful. And, you know, they all were so thankful to have been able to share that experience because it opened everything up. That's the point of a lot of this work is that once the doors of perception are open and your heart is open, you don't tend to choose to shut down again. <laughs> you, know, you you want more. You know. So anyway, um, Diane was eloquent and a brilliant woman. And, and uh, on the Donahue show, in, in a couple of sentences, she definitely got to Phil Donahue, he understood. And the real tipper was, he said, well, how often do you have to take this medication, dear? And she said, I've only taken it once. And he looked at me like, oh, okay, you know, this has got to be...
1: So let me ask you something about this, because I get what the impact is, and I get, as you say, that once the, the doors of perception have been opened, uh, it's Aldous Hexley's mm-hmm. great phrase, mm-hmm. Um that um, you don't tend to want to close them. But I would say that, when, like when I've done 10-day meditation retreats and managed to get myself to a very different place, or when I've fallen in love, that very often, well, in the case of a 10-day retreat, that consciousness may last Whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it changes me, but I go back into the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Obviously, when one falls in love, it can have many different trajectories, but in almost any trajectory of being in love, it changes over time. Yeah. Right? I understand. So, where does the MDMA opening of the doors of perception fall? in the range of human consciousness responses to peak experience? Mm.
2: Well, um, first of all, it is a peak experience. It's yeah. an epiphany, right. uh, I would say, uh, on the emotional level. Mm-hmm. Because the most profound aspect of it is this well-being, this sense mm-hmm. of self-acceptance and self-love that allows you to begin to talk about... The, this is why it's useful for trauma... Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, people are able to tell their story yeah. and not be plugged into it. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a form of self-witnessing, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to you know, if you take mushrooms or LSD or ayahuasca, you know, you are blowing your mind in a way uh, and experiencing other realities that are not necessarily uh, centering you in who you are at at your deepest emotional level. Now, what I tell people is that this experience you're having on this drug is an experience that you know in some deep and profound way because this is who you are, you know. And you've got to realize that even though this will wear off to some degree, you can always come back here and you don't need the drug to do it, you know. That once, once you experience the territory of self-love uh you know this is not the only map or the only path to, to get there it just happens to be a catalyst a shortcut you know and it motivates people to uh, to change their lives because you know you know when the neurotic uh, fear-based anxiety-based stuff starts to take over again you kind of You know, I've had the shackles off, now I'm putting them back on. Gee, I'd really like to find a way to permanently, you know. uh, And, you know, that's why a lot of people, the way they use uh, MDMA versus other psychedelics is to have a reminder maybe once once a year, once every other year. You know, they build it in as a way of clearing the emotional cobwebs Mm -hmm. so that the experience of Mm -hmm. self-love is available. But quite frankly, uh, I mean, I sit with people, or I have sit with hundred, I've sat with hundreds of people. Uh, I don't need to take MDMA at this point in order to be in that space mm-hmm. with another person, or with. You know, it's just I understand it, you know, I get it. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have the, uh, uh, and, and this is true for a lot of these psychedelics, uh, psilocybin. If we're going to talk about things that cancer patients and, and others can do is a powerful enlightenment experience, a mystical experience for a lot of people. And again, it doesn't last forever, but that epiphany, uh, I mean, the research at Hopkins about open-mindedness is my favorite because (laughs) with one session, if you can produce uh, more open-mindedness in in people, it means ultimately you're more available to yourself in a good way. And a lot of that means having the energy energy Uh, to focus on healing in new ways.
1: LSD? Before we go on to LSD, I want to take these uh, with a little care on each one. Okay. So, um, psilocybin. um, I did the wonderful New School conversation with Michael Pollan, the food writer, who is now Mm -hmm. looking into the healing power of psychedelics and had a New Yorker piece, which we both read on it. Um, uh, So, let me ask you the same question that I... uh, uh, asked uh, about MDMA, what are the contraindications for psilocybin
2: well uh, as opposed to MDMA which has physiological you know uh, potential uh, problems mm-hmm. uh, psilocybin is extremely non-toxic and and, and safe uh, you know as with cannabis uh, psilocybin there is no MD uh, Fifty. You you, you can't uh, you can't overdose uh, mm-hmm. physically. Now psychologically, if you take a heroic dose of uh, psilocybin, you can you can really get zapped, you know, and, and very spaced out. Uh, which, you know, why do you need to, to do that? Uh, if you're going to use it for healing purposes, what makes sense is to create a sacred healing environment, a safe context, work with a guide who knows what they're doing and has experience. And allow yourself to let go of the world you know, and we usually do it with blindfolds and music and headphones and things like that. Uh, th- unless you're dealing with people who are you know uh, psychologically unstable, uh, there's very little risk. You know?
1: How long do the sessions last?
2: These uh, well again, remember that you, you prep somebody prior to the day of the session. It's a, it's a day-long thing. it's, it's an mm-hmm. eight-hour.
1: So physically, there's there are no contraindications. Nope. Uh, psychologically, is it fair to say that borderline people would be more at risk? Yeah, or? this
2: is a territory where okay. you know anybody who's uh, on the edge uh, can, right. can can uh, go over the edge, right. and, and uh, you know, in the early days in the '60s, R.D. Lang and others were, were looking at you know the possibility of uh, schizophrenogenic. Uh, Mm-hmm. uh induced experiences being therapeutic. You know? mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, allow yourself to go crazy in order mm-hmm. to find your your sanity, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I never had the uh the courage to uh to, to walk down that path. Right.
1: But, now what is the distinction, because I think they're in the same class in some broad sense between psilocybin, which is mushroom based, right? Yes. And LSD, which is a synthetic Yes. What is the distinction? Well, they're
2: they're in the same class of what I could even the biochemistry. They're, they're phenethylamines. Uh, all I can say is that LSD, given the you know, you take it in micrograms, not mm-hmm. not milligrams, so it's a, a minute mm-hmm. dose uh, is incredibly. Uh, potent for mm-hmm. inducing this hallucinogenic altered state of consciousness uh, mm-hmm. and by the way uh, lsd can also be used in subclinical uh, doses uh, it, it's actually becoming quite pop- popular to use micro doses of lsd for creativity enhancement and things like that uh, mm-hmm. but what we're talking about are these ego dissolution experiences that uh, can be induced by psilocybin and lsd and Ayahuasca, DMT, and other so, related.
1: Continuing to go down this list, um, but before we get to DMT and ayahuasca, um, what is the? I mean, you describe psilocybin as an enlightenment, uh, mystical experience that's mm-hmm. non-toxic and safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you describe LSD in the same? Uh, sort of range of characterization. You know, um, it's a
2: variation on that theme, but it's pretty much the same thing with LSD. You know, nobody's ever overdosed on LSD right. uh, physically.
1: You but know. is the nature of the experience uh, uh, predictably different, or is it virtually the same?
2: No, it's... Uh, Unique. Each each one of these molecules uh, right. has, has a unique impact, but it's related in the sense that uh, your sensory input is altered in such a way that you know you you see the entire world breathing. Mm-hmm. You see trails when you move. Uh, tra- trails meaning if, if I move my hand across space, mm-hmm. uh, it, it looks like slow motion photography. You know.
0: You're listening to part two of a two part conversation. With Rick and Grossi and Michael Lerner.
2: So there are different uh, f- neurophysiological effects that produce specific visions. Is
1: LSD just as safe as psilocybin?
2: Yep, but it's uh, it's more potent, meaning that uh, you, you can take uh, bigger doses and and reach uh, you know different realms, higher realms. Uh, through lsd and again uh, the reason i'm hesitant to, to talk about those the, those extremes is that you don't need to go, you don't there. Need to go there no i understand from, that. from the therapeutic uh, perspective you can do this in a very safe way right. uh, predictably safe you know and right. again if, if the research would just be allowed to unfold
1: mm-hmm.
2: and get the support it needs this would be i think
1: uh, is lsd also schedule one yes
2: these are all schedule one so yeah, well, what
1: about dmt DM, what is that? DMT
2: is dimethyltryptamine, which is one of the two components of ayahuasca. There's a, mm-hmm. a vine uh, combined with this plant that uh, creates the ayahuasca tea, uh, which is an ancient formulation, psychedelic formulation that's been used for thousands of years in mm-hmm. South America in particular. And again, it's the zeitgeist. You know, all of a sudden, ayahuasca sessions can be be held and had uh, in, in any major uh, city in North America. You
1: mm-hmm. know, the, and like you, I have many friends who have done ayahuasca. I have never done it. Um, but it clearly has changed their lives. Right. It's, it's very, changed their lives in fundamental ways. And, you know, it's an interesting thing, because I look at my friends whose lives have been changed by ayahuasca, And on the one hand, I'm curious about it and interested. And on the other, and again, this may just be ego protection, I haven't yet wanted to change my life that way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether that is purely defensive or whether in fact there are Qualities to consciousness that has never been chemically altered that way that are of benefit. So, in other words, is there something to be said against, and I'll make this phrase up forcing the doors of perception? Is there something to be said for living with the same values of love and transformation, but in a kind of an equilibrium with your natural processes.
2: Oh, I, you know, I definitely think uh, drugs and, and drug-induced uh, mysticism, healing, et cetera, are, are not for everyone. You know? Right. And it's a very personal choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I mean, this, this is the debate, uh, the, the, the spiritual uh, types throughout history have said, you know, no artificial inducements
1: to right.
2: God, you know, or to, right. you know, uh, now the problem is when you look throughout human history, it turns out seeking higher or altered states of consciousness is innate. You know, that right. people, it's endemic. Yeah. Whether you use alcohol or right. drugs or, you know, mm-hmm. or uh twirl like the dervishes do, mm-hmm. I mean, there are many, many ways to alter consciousness. Uh, so it becomes, I think it's really important to be open mm-hmm. to the possibility that it might not be for you uh, mm-hmm. for some of the reasons you just mm-hmm. gave. And mm-hmm. there, there might even be others, you know.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and, you know, I'm perfectly okay with that. I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a proselytizer. Mm-hmm. You know? I, mean, I may have been earlier in, in, in my, uh, when I was younger and mm-hmm. a little more bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, mm-hmm. but, but I, I feel... Mm-hmm. you can be very reasonable and very rational rational about how you approach these mm-hmm. things i just happen to find myself in a situation where when you're dealing with cancer or life threatening yeah, yeah. illnesses there's an immediacy you know
1: i mean people are are terrified <laughs> right? and traumatized and at least this should be considered as an option
2: and there's one now where, let me just mention ketamine hydrochloride which is a dissociative anesthetic that uh, i mean It's so funny because now it's been discovered that it's a uh, miraculous cure for severe depression and ketamine clinics are popping up all over uh, where you can legally do a series of ketamine sessions uh, and be cured of your depression. Well, some of us discovered back in the 70s uh, that, well, lo and behold, if you give ketamine to somebody who's afraid of dying or who's ill uh and you have an ego dissolution experience and an out-of-body experience it actually drops their anxiety level dramatically you know so one of the things we used to do legally and which continues to be available legally is to do a uh, small dose of ketamine which produces this uh Incredible experience of being out of your body, flowing through the universe, at one with everything, and it's just a reassuring experience existentially. That's the only way I can put it.
1: And, uh, and I, uh, I understand. Am I correct that those can be done in sessions that are only like two hours in length or something?
2: Oh yeah, it, uh, the the dose response curve of the it's a, it's an anesthetic that was used on the battlefield in Vietnam quite a bit because. Uh-huh it does pop you out of your... It's that must
1: have been a trip, right? Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons it fell out of favor was that uh, the uh, surgeons and the uh, anesthesiologists didn't like dealing with the fact that people were tripping. <laughs> they were having these experiences and wanting to talk about it and wanted to get, uh,
1: Isn't that incredible?
2: Yeah, it really is. Uh, so it's, I, I, it's worth considering. That's all... You know, I'm speaking to anybody who's... Uh, suffering uh, from uh, chronic degenerative disease or is, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, struggling with cancer? We've
1: mentioned cannabis, marijuana. We've mentioned uh, MDMA, ecstasy or molly. We've mentioned psilocybin. Uh, We've mentioned LSD, ayahuasca, DMT, Mm -hmm. and ketamine. We haven't characterized the experience on either DMT or ayahuasca yet, the way we characterize the other ones?
2: Well, um, since DMT is a component of ayahuasca, let me just start with the dimethyltryptamine, the spirit molecule it's sometimes called.
1: The spirit molecule? Yeah. Um,
2: DMT is very short-acting, and people usually smoke a little bit or snort it uh, uh, to ingest it. but it uh, produces, if you do it correctly, uh, and this is the goal, uh, a, a kind, it kind of washes the serotonin out of your brain for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So there's an experience, usually, of white light or mystical union. Uh, sometimes people experience uh, aliens and you know, other beings, that kind of thing, spirits, spirit guides. Uh, there is a book and a movie called The Spirit Molecule, DMT the spirit molecule by uh, Rick Strassman that uh, if, if this piques your curiosity um, DMT uh,
1: what are the contraindications for DMT
2: well again used correctly none yeah okay. it it, uh, it doesn't uh, doesn't do much physiologically right. it, it's neurological more than and any...
1: is that also schedule 1 yes okay and what about ayahuasca
2: Well, ayahuasca is a, you know, I'm impressed uh, by this ancient spirit Mm -hmm. plant. You know, uh, most of the uh, shamans and the uh, cultures that work with this uh, see uh, ayahuasca as a feminine spirit.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And it emerged in different uh, tribes uh, in South America and Central America over the millennia. Uh, and they claim that you know it, it's uh, I mean, you wonder, how did whoever came up with the idea of combining these two plants to create mm-hmm. ayahuasca? Well, they say the spirits told them how to, how to make it, you know and how to do this. So, uh, most of the music they call hymns or in audio uh, are are channeled. you know the, the, the music that, the music is there, and they're just singing it or, or playing it. Uh, But the experience is very fierce and very intense, and it involves, uh, for most people, uh, at some point, vomiting or or purging. Uh, And it's, uh, you know, I've done it about 15 times, so I can talk from experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. I, I call... Ayahuasca, the fierce teacher, you know, because I always feel like she's grabbing me by the scruff of my ego and Mm -hmm. saying, let's peel this onion a few more layers, Mm -hmm. see what you find. Uh, But it's, uh, even though it's not a gentle experience, it is a benign and loving experience, uh, meaning that you come away uh, feeling uh, more whole than you were prior to the experience. Now, there are all kinds of claims uh, from the, uh, you know, medical and healing point of view made for ayahuasca ayahuasca healing cancer and other uh, chronic disease, etc. And and I just, I'm not one who has or has, you know, evaluated it at that level. Uh, I'm more, because I'm a psychologist and...
1: You know, I haven't heard a lot of stories of ayahuasca healing cancer. Hmm. So I'd like to look into those just because... Something I track, but it's interesting that I haven't heard those stories. Mm -hmm. You have, Uh,
2: yes. Uh, Well, I went down to the Amazon in 1989 to a Santo Dime uh, Mm. community in the middle of the forest, and uh, half the people who were there, the tourists and travelers who were there, were there uh,
1: trying to heal cancer,
2: trying to heal cancer, yeah, and some claiming, uh, you know, really good. Profound effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, uh, from from a psychological point of view, it's definitely a liberation experience. Uh, you want to do it with people who know what they're doing because this tends to be done in groups and yeah. in, 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 in circles. And as with everything else, you know, there are people who really do come from shamanic traditions and, and have uh, discipline and, and uh, structure.
1: What are the contraindications?
2: Uh, for well, um, again, physiologically, uh, no one dies from overdosing.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. from but it's bad for heart disease and stuff, or not? No, no. It's. Okay. Uh, I mean, does it put a lot of stress on the system? Um,
2: it does. Uh, if, if you're not one who's fond of regurgitating, or you know, yeah, uh, it, it's uh, it's uh, not uh-huh. pleasant. That uh-huh. piece, or you know, I don't know about you, but I don't uh-huh. find uh, purging pleasant. No, it's, uh, again, done appropriately, because uh, th- these communities, even the children drink the tea,
1: you know. Does it make you dizzy? It can, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, usually, uh, these things are done on the ground, and you know, everyone has a place in a circle, yeah. and they have a bucket next to them in case they uh,
1: do the other, get sick. Uh, do the other things make you dizzy?
2: Uh, again, they can. Any, they can. Any of these, even cannabis can make you dizzy if you... right. Take okay. too much, you know. Uh, so a, a lot of this is uh, <laughs> it's it, it, it's it's what in the psychedelic movement used to be called set and setting. You know, there's the mindset. Mm-hmm. So some one of the things, even, even I've had a few people uh, get nauseous and vomit on MDMA, mm-hmm.
0: you
2: know, which is very rare, you know. But nonetheless, something happens where they feel like, oh, I'm losing control or I'm feeling nauseous, you know, there's usually a transition between mm-hmm. the normal consciousness and the drug state, and in that in-between place, sometimes people get dizzy. You that's know, the set, and the setting is uh, the, yeah. the context that's created by the therapist or the
1: guide. It's going to sound like a detour, but it uh, might be a useful one. Um, I've been studying Enneagram, as you know, which is a Um, It is an archetypal psychology that Mm -hmm. Gurdjieff introduced into the West, came out of very ancient origins. But then Oscar Icazo in uh, Peru uh, and Claudio Naranjo in Berkeley uh, uh, made it a characterological archetypal psychology. And then Helen Palmer and uh, A.H. Almas and... um, uh, Many others Mm -hmm. uh, developed it uh, in Berkeley and it spread widely and taught at Stanford Business School and so forth. Um, And I've become fascinated by it. Um, And one of the things that Naranjo did was he overlaid on this. It's a circle with nine points around the circle uh, of different core characterological types. Um, And... um, And one of the things Naranjo did was to overlay contemporary psychiatric theory on it. And one of the psychiatric theories they used was Karen Horney's work. And what they came up with, uh, with these nine types, were that they were clustered into three groups of three. Um, And uh, one group was the instinctual-based ones. The second was the... um, Uh, sort of moving toward people, the heart-based ones, and the third were the fear-based ones. Mm. And um, so I happen to fall in the fear-based category. Um, And I think it's so interesting because um, it's hard to acknowledge that one is fear-based. It's not a fun thing to observe about oneself. Mm -hmm. Um, But in fact, I do come from a core response to fear, mm. you know, in some way. Uh, and that may well explain why I've been reluctant to do these um, these things, which basically put you out of control. And so part of what, for me, is part of my pattern of being fear-based is that I get seasick very easily. I get, if I go to a movie where a camera is handheld, mm. I become instantaneously nauseous. Mm. And um, so maybe that's inner ear stuff, but maybe it's also um, sort of responding to this fear-based thing. In other words, if we look at the trajectory of our conversation today, Mm -hmm. uh, you're clearly coming from... Uh, as you say, uh, a place where you're not fear-based. You know, that's not who you are. <laughs> well,
2: we all have fear. We all have fear, but, but you got a much lower level than yeah. most, uh,
1: for yeah. whatever reason. And I have, uh, like your wife Peggy, a higher level of anxiety, a higher level of fear that I work with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question when I began to ask you about dizziness, I realized, was um, that being dizzy is really hard for me. Mm -hmm. And so that began to factor into which of these things, if I were to explore them, would I consider? Um, And clearly the things that are time-limited and that um, um, are less Mm -hmm. short-acting would be a place to look at if one wanted to look at them.
2: Yeah, yeah. DMT is the shortest by far.
1: Yeah,
2: ayahuasca so, sessions tend to last for eighteen to twenty-four hours. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned, I think his name is Asha Cohen. Is that right? Uh, the the guy who so Sasha. Sasha Cohen.
2: Sasha. Uh, Sasha Shulgin, Oh,
1: mentioned. I'm sorry, yeah. Sasha Shulgin. Yeah. I, I've heard his name before and actually read about him. So he's the guy who who synthesized. What, dozens if not hundreds? Well, of drugs.
2: designer drugs, but, you know, he's the one who re- resynthesized uh, MDMA. I mean, certainly that's what made him famous because uh, mm-hmm. MDMA was first synthesized by Merck Pharmaceuticals in 1913. They were looking for a diet pill, uh-huh. and they gave up on MDMA for obvious reasons.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> and didn't Sasha Shogren die recently? Or?
2: Yeah, a couple of years ago. Yeah.
1: And he was considered a great pioneer of the field, yes?
2: Absolutely, yes. Yeah.
1: How many things did he synthesize?
2: Oh, hundreds. hundreds. Uh, he uh, he was a very good chemist, and, uh, you know, he was used uh, by the DEA to uh, analyze and, and uh, synthesize uh, lots of things in the crime world. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he became enamored uh, with... Uh, Consciousness-expanding uh, designer drugs, because that he thought that the goodness that could be had would far outweigh the you know the potential uh, downside. And so, for many years, he and a small band of uh, experimenters would uh, he would design a molecule and then tweak it and then add a methyl group here and there, and, and they would ingest these things, you know, being guinea pigs themselves, and. Uh, I can honestly say, you know, having known Sasha throughout the years, that uh, there's at least a half a dozen of his designer drugs that have a lot of therapeutic merit. Mm-hmm. But uh, we don't talk about that at this point because why bother? The I don't know if you know what happened with the designer drug bill that followed the banning of MDMA was the Congress in its wisdom decided that well, anything that produces effects like the drug that's banned is also banned. (laughs) Hmm. It's like some blanket saying, do not alter your consciousness. Um, By that definition, by the way, even aspirin, which will alter your consciousness, should be Mm -hmm. scheduled. Uh, Anyway, uh, not to get off on that.
1: No, but I think it's important because I I brought up uh, uh, Sasha Shulgren uh, because what it places in context is that the list of psychedelic um uh substances that we've just talked about both natural and synthetic is a relatively small subset mm. of the set that actually exists both in traditional medicines and in yes mm. designer drug world
2: yeah these are the ones that uh you know kind of they make the top 10 list right and uh From the point of view of potential healing and therapeutic benefit, uh, they've been explored quite a bit. I mean, there are other drugs uh, that we could at least mention, like Ibogaine, you know, things like that, uh, Mm -hmm. which I have not uh, personally Mm -hmm. experimented with, uh, but uh, have have proven useful for treating drug addiction, for instance. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gosh. Now, one of the other things that's happened with cannabis... uh Michael Pollan's book, The Botany of Desire, I think, uh, treats it. Is that the book? Yes. Uh, Is that cannabis marijuana has changed over time Mm -hmm. uh, with uh, intense cultivation, with dealing with being illegal. And so, you know, the marijuana that people ingest today is, is not your grandmother's marijuana in any way shape or form. No, it's super strong
2: by comparison, right. you know, just in terms of the concentrations of the psychoactive ingredients THC, right. CBD, there's 400 cannabinoids that are now being, you know, tested uh, for medicinal uh, application. I mean, Cannabis is, to me, again, Mr. Hopeful here, uh, the fact that I did not expect in my lifetime us to be sitting where we we are where there's actually a rational understanding and Mm -hmm. investigation that, oh, not only does this not seem to be causing all the harm that, uh, you know, the mass hysteria has laid on it in the last hundred years, uh, but there's a lot of good that comes out of, you know, children taking um, cannabis for epilepsy and finding total cure. I mean, you know what it is? It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. CBD and anti-cancer effects, glaucoma and pressure. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Pain control. Wow. It's a it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful herbal medicine is what it is.
1: Mm-hmm. And my friend and colleague, I imagine, you know, Donald Abrams, mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, is one of the world's leading authorities on the use of cannabis for cancer, mm-hmm. and um, and as you know, we did a, a New School conversation with him. In fact, we did a day long training with him. It's available on video as well as audio on the New School website. Uh, and he's written textbooks. He talks to the very, you know, he talks to the pharmacologists about it, so on and so forth. And as you mentioned, it is um, not only tremendously beneficial uh, for quality of life with cancer, but there's a real potential that it may have some actual anti-cancer activity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and that is very promising. And uh, now there, because medicinal marijuana has become legal in some a states. growing number of states... Mm-hmm. Um, cancer patients can go into a, uh, you know, a, a, a dispensary, store, yeah. a dispensary, and knowledgeable people can help them figure out which of the, mm-hmm. whatever it is, 20, 50 different varieties of marijuana they may want to consider.
2: Yeah, and all it's edible and yeah. smokable and yeah. tincture and oil yeah. forms. <laughs> yeah.
1: So if we look at this, I've just been reading a book um that uh, a friend of ours recommended to me by an Israeli archaeologist named Sa- called Sapiens is the name of the book. I don't have the guy's name. Hmm. but it's a history of of the universe and particularly of Homo sapiens from the start. And one of the points he makes, which is in line with your hopefulness and reinforces, my hopefulness, which is a bigger stretch, uh, is he talks about how um, our belief structures about the world are actually beliefs. They are not actually embedded in the reality. And so he uses the different uh, belief structures of different tribes, of different civilizations Just as examples, including capitalism as a belief system. Which it is. Which it is. And so going toward hopefulness with you, um, isn't it intriguing that as we enter this period of tremendous crisis, right, where a global response is trauma and fear Mm. and anxiety that the traditional medicines and the new medicines which were banned during the Nixon period but stayed underground as part of the culture are now re-emerging into the mainstream and being accepted and being used at precisely the moment when we need these medicines.
2: Yes well may it be so I mean that's, and may
1: it be so So that but just, phenomenologically sociologically that's a fascinating thing Mm -hmm. it 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 plays to the possibility uh, uh, let me go into the sort of ayahuasca metaphor at least that there are forms of consciousness that want to cooperate with us that are calling us Uh, perhaps one could say the feminine spirit of the earth is calling us to these forms of cooperation and collaboration and love, and that these medicines are emerging from this long period of uh, repression and denial uh, as uh, substances to help us make that trip. Well,
2: uh, again, uh, that perspective resonates really deeply with... uh, Mm -hmm. My Not my, not only just my belief that that's what's happening, but, you know, I think that life finds a way. You know, our friend Caroline Casey says, mm-hmm. cooperators are standing by. Mm-hmm. And that's a humorous way of mm-hmm. saying we're not in the universe alone. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a force at work which wants to enhance, mm-hmm. expand, increase, evolve life. Mm-hmm. And we're a part of that. And we should pay attention to what emerges at any mm-hmm. given, uh, you know, epic. You know, here in our moment, like you say, things that have been vilified and mm-hmm. repressed and made uh, to seem like the devil's work uh, are turning out to be allies. Mm-hmm. You know? And so the skillful means at this moment is, okay, let's treat these as allies that can be used in beneficial and, and positive ways, and let's do it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I'm enough of a scientist to, to really like to test the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. You know, is ayahuasca a useful way of helping people to heal at all these different levels? Mm-hmm. Well, there are ways to study this, you know.
1: It's, it's You know, the place where I'm really able to join you and hope is, um, because I have to get there in my own grounded way, working with my fear, working with my more Apollonian nature. Um, But the place I'm really able to join you deeply, not only that we share the analysis, and not only that we share where we'd like to see it go, but how do those of us who are more fear-based join those of you who are uh, more fully hopeful? How can we find our way there? And I think For me, part of it is um, that um, I do believe, you know, Margaret Mead's famous, famous line that uh, never underestimate the power of small groups of people to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in this book called Sapiens by this uh, uh, Israeli um, archaeologist, he talks about the fact that human beings don't seem to have the capacity to have intimate community with more than about 150 people. Mm. And it's interesting that your hollyhock conferences max out at 110, 120. And uh, beyond that, you need bureaucracies and forms of structure. You know, you need more rule-based systems. More hierarchy. More hierarchy. But at, at 100 to 150, something like that... Mm. Uh, One can stay in close community and then in places like South Whidbey Island and other small communities. I've lived in Bolinas for over 40 years. Um, There are somehow ways in which small communities can go beyond that 150 with a series of kind of tribes, Mm -hmm. you know, interactive tribes, interconnected Mm -hmm. tribes. But I do believe that whatever the future brings, that the survival and flourishing mechanisms will be small, deep communities. I believe that, mm-hmm. whatever happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm with you there. Excuse me? Yeah. I agree. And and then the question for me... Um, is how do we bend the arc as much as possible toward preserving as much as possible of nature and justice and so forth? And my own metaphor is, uh, is Noah's Ark. It's an arc strategy. It's that these small communities around the world represent arcs where we are invited to preserve, protect, defend, support, heal as much of nature, as much of humanity as we can, mm-hmm. with the hope that we will meet, reach critical mass and transformative power for the whole species and the Earth. Because we know when people have a life-threatening individual condition, like cancer, enormous transformation is possible. Right. We know that. And we know from the study of history and civilizations that when civilizations go through transformative experiences like wars, World War I, World War II, Civil War, that tremendous civilizational shifts happen. So it's we know at the individual level, we know at the community level, we know at the civilizational level, that that can happen.
2: Yes. That's, we know that. That's the hopeful piece.
1: That's mm. the hopeful piece. Mm. And uh, so here at this point, where... Uh, where the earth and humanity is is in a crisis of completely unprecedented proportions, the question is whether we will awaken.
2: Yes. I mean, yeah. beautifully said, Michael. Yeah. Uh, and I, I want to just bring it right down to this moment mm-hmm. and the year 2016. Mm-hmm. And one way of framing the possibility here is that we have a choice between... A fear-based future and a love-based future. Mm-hmm. And the presidential election in the United States represents symbolically a very stark and clear choice mm-hmm. that people have to make. You know, do we want to choose fear and isolationism, and etc.? You know, and I, and I don't have, I have to name names here. These energetics are in play. And, mm-hmm. Or can we choose love and collaboration and cooperation and, you know, protecting nature, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think all of us have to take seriously the responsibility of choosing love over fear in this moment. Mm -hmm. And that can be done, like I say, it has to do with raising children, you know. Okay, how do I help these children feel safe and supported and seen and loved we know how to do this. See, that's the thing, uh, you know. Human development has come a long way in terms of our understanding of what what it takes to raise a healthy child. Let's do that, you know. Let's vote for love, and let's do what can we can to uh, raise our children, the children in our communities, uh, in as uh, supportive, safe, and trusting and loving environment as possible.
1: Rick and Grassi, thank you for. Your friendship, your work, um, your history of struggle on behalf of life. um, And thank you for being with us at the New School. You're most welcome, Michael. My
2: pleasure. Catch you on the flip side.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to Part 2 of a two-part conversation with Rick Ingrassi and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit tns.commonweal.org for more podcast episodes and information on future events. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L, You can also find us on Facebook, Vimeo, and YouTube. Thank you for joining us.